taking the first step in becoming a member of the world's elite fighting force, the United States Marine Corps. The Marine Corps accepts the commanding voice of authority, a drill instructor at Marine Corps Recruit Depot, San Diego. It was a voice like this that Lee Harvey Oswald heard when he arrived for boot camp on October 28, 1956. He was just 10 days beyond his 17th birthday. The Marines would instill discipline in Oswald, or at least try to. Like all Leathernecks, he learned to obey orders from his superiors without question or hesitancy. He also learned something else, to shoot a high-powered rifle. I'm Paul Brandis. You're listening to Countdown to Dallas, a podcast series based on my book of the same title. Last week, I mentioned that Oswald's childhood was frankly a mess. In 17 years, he had lived in 21 places and attended a dozen schools. Teachers, neighbors, even his own family told of his problems, not the least of which was an explosive temper, a penchant for violence, and fantasies about killing, including an alleged desire to assassinate President Dwight Eisenhower. In short, this was an unstable and dangerous man. From now on, you will live, sleep, eat, and train as a team. In this regard, the rigid discipline and obedience to authority might have been useful to a figure like Oswald, whose biological father died before he was even born, and whose stepfather left when he was only eight. Plus, Lee admired his older brother Robert, who had been a Marine, and his stepbrother John, who was in the reserves. It's not uncommon for people to look for stability in, in joining uh, the military and uh, the Marine Corps in particular, looking people who have not had a stable environment, people who have not had uh, close family support. Sometimes the uh, military and the Marine Corps particularly can provide that, a brotherhood. Chaz Henry is a combat-decorated Marine veteran who rose to the rank of captain. He now works on security matters and issues impacting military families. People who come in uh, who, who have a long history of not getting along with authority, though, do have difficulty, particularly in recruit training, because that's all about conforming, and that's all about becoming this new thing, this new individual who is a part of something, not an individual standing aside, but people working together toward a common goal in this case, uh, you know, ability to work together and fight together in combat. Uh, so in recruit training, a person with that sort of you know, background is likely going to have difficulty if their inclination is always to push back against authority. Be a Marine. Like this 1950s Marine film says, Oswald was trained all right. And for every Marine, that begins with their rifle and learning the rifle creed. Here's a training video from that era. This is my rifle. There are many like it, but this one is mine. My rifle is my best friend. It is my life. I must master it as I must master my life. My rifle without me is useless. Without my rifle, I am useless. On the Marine rifle range, Oswald proved anything but useless.
That's a Garand M1 standard issue in the 1950s. Oswald was put through an intense training program in which he learned sighting, aiming, and manipulation of the trigger. He then went through what's called dry firing when he assumed a variety of positions with his rifle. After all this, he was trained on the rifle range itself, firing 50 rounds a day for five days from distances up to 500 yards. Oswald did well, scoring 212 out of a possible 250, qualifying him as a Marine sharpshooter. Two and a half years later, as his time in the Marines was winding down, it was May 6, 1959, Oswald's skills had slipped a bit, but he still scored 191 out of 250, which qualified him as a marksman. Let's place this in broader context. For that, we have the Warren Commission testimony of two Marine experts. Major Eugene Anderson is first. He was assistant head of the marksmanship branch of the Marine Corps. He said, quote, I would say that as compared to other Marines receiving the same type of training, that Oswald was a good shot, somewhat better than or equal to, better than the average, let us say. As compared to a civilian who had not received this intensive training, he would be considered as a good to excellent shot, unquote. And Sergeant James Zom, the non-commissioned officer who led the marksmanship training unit at Marine Corps School in Quantico, Virginia, testified, quote, I would say in the Marine Corps, he is a good shot, slightly above average, and as compared to the average male of his age throughout the civilian throughout the United States, that he is an excellent shot, unquote. As I've mentioned before, conspiracy buffs are correct in saying that the Warren Commission, in their haste to finish their report in 1964, missed a lot and did not speak with people that they should have. But the commission did speak with those two marine marksmanship experts and their testimonies are often overlooked in many conspiracy books. Conspiracy buffs are also correct, by the way, in pointing out that the M1, which Oswald trained on in the Marines, was a better weapon than the used Italian-made rifle that he bought in 1963. That one was called a Manlicher Carcano. They're right, but then again, like any good Marine rifleman, Oswald practiced and practiced and knew that weapon inside and out. There's one other thing, too. I mentioned Oswald's Marine proficiency from 500 yards. It's worth noting that the distance from the sixth floor window of the Texas School Book Depository to the back of President Kennedy's head on Elm Street was estimated to be just 88 yards. Oswald had proven himself to be a sharpshooter from distances more than five and a half times greater. Now, the one thing that many conspiracy buffs tend to look at when exploring this period of Oswald's life is his posting in Japan at a Marine Air Control Squadron at Atsugi Naval Air Station near Tokyo. I'll get to that in a minute. But before continuing, let's go back to episode one for a minute and remember those baseline behaviors that Lee Harvey Oswald was associated with. The anger, the lack of social skills, resentment of authority, a penchant for violence, and an inability to fit in. That's not me saying all that. It's his teachers, neighbors, relatives, a social worker, and psychiatrist. Lee didn't leave all that behind when he enlisted. It came with him. 
This is important. These behaviors were the constants that ran through Oswald's life. As a teen in the Marines in Japan, the Soviet Union, that's in a later episode, of course, and back in the States, right up to the very end, in fact. Oswald's surroundings changed constantly, but not his psyche. The inner traits, habits, and attitudes of this unsettled and disturbed young man stayed with him. These remained constant. It's important for anyone studying the assassination and studying Oswald to remember this. Every time I say ready, move, it's to be like an explosion. Do you understand? Yes, sir. Scream at the top of your lungs. Aye, sir. Aye, sir. Let it on the rack. So anyway, here's Oswald, all of 17 and away from home for the first time, exposed to a rigid authoritarian culture where individuality was weeded out from day one. Where talking back disagreement and dissent was absolutely intolerable. Boot camp in San Diego had been so rigid, so disciplined, that the lifelong baseline behaviors of Oswald that I've mentioned before, the ones cited by teachers, neighbors, his own family, and so forth, were repressed. But after graduating, they surfaced again. After San Diego, he spent several months at bases in Mississippi and California, learning skills that would qualify him as a radar operator. One Marine who knew Oswald was Alan Feld, who told the FBI in 1964 that Oswald was, quote, an argumentative type of person, adding, and I'm quoting again, not popular with other recruits, and his company was avoided if possible, unquote. Feld added that Oswald, who, as we've established, grew up in an economically challenged family, disliked people of wealth. He also disliked people in authority, and according to Feld, named former President Harry Truman and the current president, Dwight Eisenhower. Oswald did not like Eisenhower. Such was his sense of superiority that the teenage Marine private even took it upon himself to criticize portions of Eisenhower's command of the D-Day invasion. But Oswald's feelings went well beyond mere dislike. Among the tens of thousands of pages concerning the assassination that have been released by the government in recent years includes an apparent desire to kill. Larry Sabato is director of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia and author of the acclaimed Kennedy Half Century. He spoke on CBS. I had not realized before I read one of these new documents that uh, Lee Harvey Oswald in the mid-1950s during President Eisenhower's second term had threatened President Eisenhower's life. This was not reported to authorities. It was by uh, an acquaintance of his in the military. He said it to that acquaintance and indicated he wanted to see Eisenhower die and he'd like to be the one to do it because he was an oppressor of poor people. When you look at Oswald's life, you see that there is this strain of violence. He has violent tendencies and expressed them uh, well before November 22nd with other uh, violent activities and threats. Another Marine, Daniel Powers, testified also in 1964 that Oswald was a, quote, loner whose general personality would alienate others. Powers also observed that Oswald didn't seem to fit in with the Marine culture, describing as, quote, an oddball from the Marine Corps' own definition of what a Marine is ideally supposed to be, unquote. 
So we get a general picture of Oswald standing out because he was different. There's nothing wrong with being different, of course, though individualism doesn't exactly mesh with the Marine ethos. Some Marines began to pick on him. They called him Ozzy Rabbit. It wasn't only Oswald's behavior that was different. His interest in a political and economic system that was different from America's also began to emerge. What sparked this interest probably has roots in a few things, notably the conditions he grew up in, but there is also something else. New York, and Julius Rosenberg arrives at the federal court to receive sentence for betraying his country's atomic secrets to Soviet Russia. Appearing with him is his wife, Ethel, adjudged a full partner in this treacherous crime. Oswald's anti-Americanism can also be traced to the trial, conviction, and ultimate execution of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg for passing U.S. atomic secrets to the Soviet Union. That he picked up a leaflet in New York City about the coming execution of the Rosenbergs. And as he reads this, it begins to show him that there's a way of finding himself by opposing the established order. That's investigative journalist Edward J. Epstein speaking to PBS's Frontline back in 1993. Oswald himself said in a 1959 interview after he defected to the Soviet Union that the plight of the Rosenbergs somehow resonated with him. In his massive book on the Kennedy assassination, Reclaiming History, Vincent Bugliosi writes that, quote, Lee had probably found a metaphor for the outward expression of his dissatisfaction with his life, for the rage of a child who believed he had been abused and neglected not only by his mother, but also by the schools, the courts, the entire system, unquote. In any case, now that he was in the Marines, his interest in communism, the Soviet Union, and the Russian language began to bloom. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources, which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.
all this is a backdrop for Oswald's next posting, Japan, where he was stationed at Atsugi Naval Air Station near Tokyo. It was the first time Oswald had ever been out of the United States. This portion of Oswald's brief Marine career is of intense interest to conspiracy buffs. Again, here's Edward J. Epstein speaking on PBS's Frontline. When he arrived at at Atsugi Air Base in Japan, wasn't simply an Air Force defense base. It was a CIA base. And the CIA program taking place at that base involved one of America's most secret and important reconnaissance missions, the spy plane, which became famous as the U-2 plane. The inference here is that this was somehow fishy, that Oswald was deliberately stationed at Atsugi by the Marines to be near this super-secret CIA reconnaissance program. The U-2, which is still in service today, is an extraordinary plane. It could climb far higher than other aircraft. The Soviets called it the Black Lady of Espionage. On occasion, uh, we would get aircraft calling into the uh, bubble at Atsugi that would ask us for the winds aloft at 70 and sometimes 100,000 feet. And we just didn't realize there were aircraft at that particular point in time that could fly that high. That's former Marine Dan Powers, who is stationed with Oswald, again speaking to Frontline. As a radar operator, Oswald certainly knew basic details of the U-2. He also knew the location of American bases, radio frequencies, call signs, and authentication codes used to confirm the identities of aircraft and so forth. Conspiracy buffs claimed that when Oswald defected to the Soviet Union in the fall of 1959, he offered to give the KGB this sort of secret information. We'll discuss this in a later episode, but for now, I'll come back to reclaiming history and Vincent Bugliosi, who notes, and I'll quote, Although conspiracy theorists have made much of Oswald's brief proximity to the U-2, there is no evidence that his particular unit actually dealt with the spy plane's operations, nor is there any evidence that Oswald displayed more than a normal curiosity about the plane, unquote. Five weeks after arriving in Japan, Oswald's troubles began. One day, he managed to shoot himself in the left arm while messing around with the 22 caliber gun. He owned the gun privately. The Marines didn't know about it. This was regarded as a minor offense, but still it led to Oswald's court-martial, the first of two. He was later sentenced to 20 days in the brig, fined and demoted to private. The jail time was suspended if he behaved. Oswald was also reassigned to the mess hall as a cook. Oswald thought he was being treated unfairly. He would later admit that around this time he first had thoughts of defecting to the Soviet Union. Months later, there was another incident. In 1958, he was court-martialed again, this time for pouring a drink on a fellow Marine and challenging him to a fight. This time, Oswald was thrown into the brig. Well, I think that changed him. When he went to his second court-martial, he went to the brig for over 45 days. Jack Swike was an intelligence officer at Atsugi. He never knew Oswald, but later spent years investigating his time there. And if you've ever been in a Marine Corps brig, that'll change most people. I mean, that's a hard-time prison. So when he came out, he was pretty bitter. Two court-martials, Oswald was only 18. Still another Marine, 
Peter Francis Connor would testify in 1964 that Oswald, quote, engaged in several fights and, quote, responded to the orders of his superiors with insolent remarks. Yet another Marine, John Heindel, said, quote, Oswald was often in trouble for failure to adhere to rules and regulations and gave the impression of disliking authority, unquote. Heindel added that Oswald once told him that he was tired of being kicked around. Oswald's behavior in the Marines seemed an extension of the baseline behaviors that I've mentioned before. We spoke about this in episode one, the Oswald who threw rocks at other children, the Oswald who pulled a knife on his own brother, who punched his own mother, who was, teachers and neighbors said, and I'm using their words, strange, a bad kid, vicious almost. The boy described by a psychiatrist as having fantasies about, quote, omnipotence and power, the boy who said he disliked everyone, and again, the teen who expressed an interest in killing President Eisenhower. Swike, whose book on Oswald is called The Missing Chapter, Lee Harvey Oswald in the Far East, says Oswald's self-inflicted troubles meant the end of any initial thought he might have had of staying in the Marines. Now, there's two, two Oswalds. The first one that came there he was uh, happy-go-lucky. He found a home there. He wanted to extend his service. He enjoyed Japan. Um, uh, he got into trouble, and then he asked that his extension be cut off. And, of course, the command cut it off anyway and said, you're going home in regular time. You're not extending you because you're, you've been in trouble and you're a problem. Now unwanted by the Marines, Oswald was sent back to the United States, his troop ship sailing into San Francisco on November 15, 1958. His tour of the Far East lasted only a year and was dotted with trouble from start to finish. He was sent to Air Station El Toro near Los Angeles. His Marine hitch had another year to go. He spent much of it studying Russian. A subscription to a Russian-language newspaper raised eyebrows, but his superiors, knowing that Oswald would soon be leaving the Marines, did nothing. He answered his fellow leathernecks with da and niet and called them comrades. They called him Oswaldkovich and sometimes accused him, in jest, of being a spy. Oswald seemed to enjoy that. It was all in good fun, apparently. But Oswald also sometimes called his fellow Marines, quote, American capitalist warmongers. Joyous followers of Fidel Castro sweep triumphantly through the Cuban capital. Meantime, on New Year's Day 1959, Fidel Castro took power in Cuba. Oswald and a fellow Marine, Nelson Delgado, discussed going there to take part. Oswald's dream of going to Cuba would endure, but first he had another destination in mind. That August, he requested an early discharge, saying he needed to take care of his mother. The Marines, eager to rid themselves of this twice-court-martialed malcontent, approved his request, giving him an honorable discharge. But Lee Harvey Oswald was lying. He had no intention of going home to his mother, the woman he despised. On September 4th, he applied for a passport. On September 11th, he was released from duty. Nine days later, in his native New Orleans, he boarded a steamship, the SS Marion Likes. It was the first leg on a voyage to his dream destination. Moscow. 
If you like this podcast, check out my best-selling book of the same title, Countdown to Dallas. Special thanks to Chaz Henry, Semper Fi, Sir, also to historian Stephen Beschloss. Sound from the PBS program Frontline, its 1993 episode titled Who Was Lee Harvey Oswald, is highly recommended. Also from the Sixth Floor Museum in Dallas, the U.S. Marine Corps Archives, British Path Newsreels, and WBBM News Radio in Chicago. Our editor and producer, Aaron Land. Audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman. Executive producers, Michael DeAloya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm Paul Brandis. Thanks so much for listening. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.